I'm Alex Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about how to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. So, to that end, lots of activity coming out of the House legislature. Uh, they have introduced, you know, what we covered last year the House Judiciary Committee. We read through the thing, I read through the thing. Uh, it was long, and, but I cited certain pages in there. I think I think I can still remember page two seventy six. This was the the from the Democrat report. Uh, the House Judiciary Committee is a bipartisan committee. The chairman is a Democrat, so the Democrats uh, issued their first report, which was more aggressive and scathing than the Republican report. But anyway, page two seventy six of the Democrat version of the report actually had an admission from Amazon documents saying that their third-party sellers were also customers to Amazon. And why that linkage is so important is it gets to the crux of basically do exactly that, right? How to fight back and win against big tech. You need to establish that these platform monopolies, all of them tech monopolies are platforms. Uh, Not all platforms are monopolies, however, but all the uh, platform monopolies actually have two customer groups, consumers and producers. And when you say, oh, big tech is so big and bad, who are they taking advantage of? It's actually not the consumer for the most part. It's actually the producers. And who are these producers? They are uh, sellers on Amazon, content creators on YouTube or Facebook or uh, Twitch or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They are websites on Google search. They are... um, you know, developers on uh, iOS or Android, right? So these are all that, think of it as just that kind of creator community. Could be selling, could be uh, creating content, doing a whole myriad of activities of value creation. And that's the whole concept of platforms, right? The, the value that's actually being consumed on the platform, the majority of it doesn't actually sit on the platform's balance sheet, right? It's actually contributed into the platform by third party producers. And that's where platforms, when they reach monopolistic scale and they want to ramp up profits, but now they've got a stranglehold on supply because they've got demand locked in so well, right? So who do they cram down? Where do they eke out more and more margin? Or who do they cut out of the transaction? It's the producers, right? And the consumers are then indirectly, uh, um, you know, maligned by that. But the, the, the direct impact is on the producer. So anyway, you've got these five bills, uh, which, you know, I, I am generally very positive, right? What I keep saying on the show is people are waking up, people are seeing the transgressions by big tech, and we will, and we are fighting back, and we will win. Um, and we will have more parity and balance uh, and a more competitive and kind of just uh, uh, a technolo- technological and kind of business environment um, for companies, for society, et cetera, which would be good for everyone involved, except for the tech monopolies. But anyway, um, so generally, I'm very positive to see these things come out. Will all these five bills actually end up getting passed? Absolutely not. But is this an important step in the process to start to author legislation, which is now just one other, you know, uh, arrow in the quiver to fight back and win against big tech. This is in the House, right? So it still means this has to go through the Senate and then it needs to be signed into law by the president. 
Um, so there's, you know, a lot of steps ahead of this. But again, you got to take a step back. If you needle over the ins and outs of each one of these bills, you're missing the point. And unfortunately, that's what, you know, every pretty much every one of the kind of tech journalists, tech media, uh, you, you know, groups out there um, from, you know, I, I, I reference a lot Ben Thompson from Stratechery, the information, all of them generally are kind of like negative on this. You know, they're little negative Nancys ridiculing and kind of like nitpicking these bills. And you got to take a step back and say, yeah, you know what? This is a great step forward. And, and, and this is the legislative process, right? Nothing, just like no strategy survives first contact with the enemy, no bill survives first contact with Congress, okay? So I'm going to dive a little bit into each one of these. But again, generally, this is a very positive development. Some of these, I think, are more spot on than others. But overall, I'm very positive on seeing this come to light. So, you know, let's just kind of do a little overview. Now, this is uh, David Ciceline. He is the uh, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. And um, so, <laughs> or, or sorry, the Antitrust Subcommittee, but I think that's a part of the House Judiciary Committee. Um, so anyway, here are the five bills. You have the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. You have the Platform Competition and Opportunity Act, the Ending Platform Monopolies Act, you know, I, I like that name, um, the Augmenting Compatibility and Competition by Enabling Service Switching Access Act. Um, it's a mouthful, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. And the Merger Filing Fee Modernization Act. So let's start from kind of simplicity and, and work our way on up, right? So the Merger Filing Fee Modernization Act, this thing is simple. All it's saying is you have to pay more fees when you are a um, you know, tech monopoly. I'm going to get to the definition of tech monopoly. And so basically, it's just increasing the budget for the Department of Justice and the FTC to put more resources on evaluating a potential M&A and, and acquisition activity by a big tech monopoly to another firm, right? So it's just saying, hey, you're going to pay more money, you're going to pay more fees, and now therefore these government departments can hire more people and put more resources on either challenging, you know, reviewing um, any potential potential acquisition, and then certainly, you know, uh, um, opposing and 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 uh, trying to break up an acquisition that they don't feel is appropriate. So, yeah, that's simple. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Big tech monopolies got more money than they know what to do with. And yeah, sure, go do that, right? You think about how much resources they can put in to their legal team versus the, uh, these government branches. Um, so that one's easy. Before I go further, let's talk about the definition of what they're trying to get at for a tech monopoly. This is the one thing that I do think could use some work. Again, you know, they're going to be able to edit this and modify it and, and all this kind of stuff, right? So um, it is actually kind of difficult to figure out how to properly define a tech monopoly. You know, that's actually an exercise that we've had to go through for um, for Platt, and and it's not easy. There are a few 
areas that they certainly uh, miss the mark. And, you know, again, some of the scrutiny is, oh, well, Walmart could be included in this. JP Morgan could be included in this. Visa could be included in this definition. Visa actually is absolutely a platform business, absolutely a dominant kind of pseudo platform monopoly in, in as a payment platform with MasterCard and Amex. So some people were saying, oh, Visa might uh, satisfy these conditions. So, you know, here was uh, their stab at it, they being the bill. For the past 12 months, if you have at least 50 million monthly active users on the online platform, you know how I've been saying that Twitter is not a, a, a monopoly, right? They're a baby tech company. They're what, 30, 40, whatever billion market cap, whatever it is these days. They don't have 50 million monthly active users, as an example, right? So Twitter is not a platform monopoly. Netflix, for example, have 50 million US-based monthly active users. Absolutely. Interesting. Now, uh, what else do we have in here? 100,000 or it could be 100,000 monthly active business users on the platform. So I think this is really interesting, right? I talk a lot about B2B distribution. I talk a lot about B2B marketplaces. I talk a lot about how you're seeing platform businesses move from more B2C industries into B2B. So love the fact that they're kind of calling out this difference and appreciating the difference between B2C facing platforms and B2B facing platforms. Love that. Net annual sales uh, or market capitalization greater than $600 billion. So this is where they were saying, you know, Walmart could have over $600 billion in sales and have over 50 million monthly active users. And then the last provision here is could be a critical trading partner uh, for the sale or provision of any product or service offered on or directly related to the online platform. And yeah, you could say Walmart is absolutely that as well, right? What they don't have in here, again, is the concept of a consumer and producer relationship, which is unique to platform businesses. Netflix would not fit that criteria. Walmart would, but in a very nascent part of their business with Walmart Marketplace, right? So you don't have that kind of two-sided concept directly in the definition. And I think that would really clear up a lot of things. That would make it very straightforward, right? The only reason why that's actually really relevant to this is because when you have a two-sided relationship with consumer and producer, that's what's give you network effects. That's what gives you a winner-take-all dynamic and ultimately gives you that monopolistic hold on a, on a market or a vertical at scale, right? You will not see that as has been evidenced by Netflix. You will not see that um, with Netflix uh, because they don't have a supply side network effect. And therefore, they don't have the kind of lock-in that YouTube has on its video content platform because you need to convince millions of content creators on YouTube to join yet another service, right? And because YouTube's model is advertising rev share based, that other competitive service would need to provide revenue dollars or ad revenue share or some kind of you know, dollars to incentivize all these creators to, to now move over to another platform. That's a big lift. In the Netflix model, which is linear, right? Now you can see, yeah, there's five plus really uh, material competitors to Netflix in just, you know, 18 months time from Disney Plus to Apple to Amazon 
to HBO to Peacock from Comcast to, well, I guess now, now you got Time Warner and now Discovery are merging. And I don't know. There's probably a couple others I'm missing in there. Whatever it is, there's a lot of competitors to Netflix. And you know what? They're actually doing okay. There's nowhere near that winner take all uh, dynamic on. Uh, kind of high-end video uh, movie streaming, TV episode streaming that Netflix is in versus the more user-generated content, more short to mid-form content uh, in, in, in the network effect-driven platform model on the YouTube end of the spectrum, right? So anyway, this can get cleaned up though. This is all a work in progress. What's in the other bills, assuming they can get the definition right and all that stuff dialed in. The next easiest one is here, this Access Act which is actually something that Europe has done, the UK has done, or, or been working on, which is just to say, for example, you can easily switch and bring your data, make it interoperable from one platform to another. So for example, you know, if you wanna go from one social network to another social network, Facebook needs to make that switch or that transfer more seamless. You know, we've actually seen this uh, attempted to be done with the EHR systems, there is an interoperability act. It actually was passed. So um, if you're Epic and Cerner, now you need to allow for your systems to communicate and be interoperable. It is by no means a foolproof silver bullet. Uh, that initiative is still going and it's been years in the making. But again, is it going to solve the problem? No. Does it put, again, because the qualifier is on monopolies, so not all platforms, but monopolies, it's creating now more overhead and more scrutiny on the platform monopoly. It will create some value, right? It might be a little bit arduous. You know, you're going to have to go deep into the settings on Facebook to extract all your information and then transfer it here. But the point is, you'll be able to do it if you really want to do it. They certainly won't make it easy for you to do it. They'll try to obfuscate that away into a bunch of, you know, nested uh, menus, but you'll be able to do it. They have the resources to spend on it. That's for sure. But again, a step in the right direction, not a huge lift, but yeah, you know, a, a, a solid piece of this overall um, direction. Then I'm going to skip to this Platform Competition and Opportunity Act prohibits acquisitions of competitive threats by dominant platforms as well as acquisitions that expand or entrench the market power of online platforms. So, you know, we've seen our tech monopolies today get to that platform conglomerate status by using M&A to expand into adjacent verticals, right? You take that dominant white hot platform uh, ecosystem that you have in one or a couple industries, right? And now you bolt on other platform types, right? So, Take Facebook. Facebook buying Instagram is more of the former example here, competitive threats. So, you know, those are more directly related platform, more similar platform type, kind of content platform, social network, right? Facebook to Instagram. So that's the first bit that this thing is describing. The second bit is talking about, for example, Facebook into messaging, right? With WhatsApp. So, now, Facebook can use its dominance in social media and content platform models and then take that existing network and supercharge an adjacent platform type in messaging and communications with WhatsApp 
you put the two things together, you have a very strong now platform conglomerate ecosystem. So that WhatsApp would, would fit into the latter half of this description of what this thing is getting at. Will they be able to prohibit this entirely? Who knows, right? But certainly ratcheting up the scrutiny um, for these tech monopolies to continue to use M&A to either eviscerate competitors, direct competitors, or expand into m- new markets, a, certainly a valid thing to put forth and begin the dialogue around. And we'll see how watered down this stuff gets. Will, will all these get watered down to some degree? Yes. Do you have this thing called regulatory capture? Uh, regulatory capture is an economic theory that regulatory agencies may come to be dominated by the interests they regulate and not by the public interest. The result is that the agency instead acts in ways that benefit the interests it is supposed to be regulating. And that concept still applies to the legislature. So whether it's regulatory capture, legislative capture, um, these congressmen and women uh, certainly are receiving a lot of donor money, either directly or indirectly, from, guess who? Big tech monopolies. So will these bills survive first contact with the enemy, the enemy being the rest of Congress? Absolutely not. Will they get watered down if, assuming they pass at all? Absolutely. Again, something is better than nothing at this point because we literally have Zippo when it comes to legislature, legislative action, specifically around tech monopolies. What I've talked about in the past, right, around repealing Section 230 or, you know, other proposals that have been put forward is if you act and apply this stuff unilaterally across all of platform and tech companies, big and small, you could actually be doing more harm than good. What you need to do is focus these kinds of uh, legislative actions against the tech monopolies, right? Because those are the real um, platforms that are actually um, taking advantage and 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 have too much power that does need to be checked. So, for all of those reasons, we have at least that focus on big tech monopolies. They could dial in the definition, but again, directionally, this stuff is is. Uh, is, is very positive. The last two are actually very similar. If you read this at the top, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, okay, says to prohibit discriminatory conduct by dominant platforms, including a ban on self-preferencing and picking winners and losers online. Then you have the Ending Platforms Monopolies, Platform Monopolies Act, love the name, eliminates the ability of dominant platforms to leverage their control over over across multiple business lines to self-preference and disadvantage competitors in ways that undermine free and fair competition. Hmm, interesting. Seems kind of similar. Yep, you're right, because they are similar. So what are the differences? Why have two bills that are overlapping in in some respects? Another interesting point here is look at who uh, sponsored this. So uh, to the counterpoint about my concern on either regulatory or legislative capture, Pramila Jayapal, and when I was covering, uh, when I was covering the House Judiciary Committee or Antitrust Committee hearings on this, you know, I highlighted this. She was actually very sharp. She made some really good points. Um, I specifically covered, you know, some of some of her outtakes of what she was talking about and. 
you know, was, was glad to hear what she was talking about. But she is from Washington's 7th Congressional District. Hmm, does Washington harbor some, some big tech monopolies? Hmm, yeah, maybe just a couple. 7th Congressional District encompasses most of Seattle. Amazon has, you know, definitely has a presence in, in her district. And uh, the bill that she directly sponsored here um, really goes hard directly at Amazon. Maybe that's why this is a, a specific bill. So let's start with the Ending Platform Monopolies Act, probably my favorite name of all the acts. It shall be unlawful for a platform operator to own control or have a beneficial interest in a line of business other than the covered platform. So what it's saying is, hey, you have this platform business. If you have adjacent business lines or you're selling other products on top like Amazon Basics, you can't do that. That's what this is saying. You can't give advantage to the covered platform operator's own product services or lines of business on the covered platform over those of a competing business or a business that constitutes nascent or potential competition to the covered platform operator. You know what we talk about where when, when platforms become tech monopolies where they get into trouble is because they vertically integrate and compete against who? Their producers. That's essentially what she is getting at with this language um, is to say, you can't do that. You can't give yourself an advantage over your producers. Now, I think the, where the rubber is going to hit the road is some of the language here says it eliminates the ability of dominant platforms to leverage their control self-preference and disadvantage uh, competitors. Now, what exactly does that mean? It eliminates the ability, right? Um, so how do you do that? How do you enforce that? But again, directionally, Amazon taking data from its third-party sellers, using that data to then um, you know, cut the third-party sellers out of the transaction directly and source the product 1P instead of 3P. Can't do that using your data and other, you know, and favoring Amazon basics, for example, um, in the listings on Amazon search, right? You know, Amazon basics always goes to the top. Hmm. You can't do that either. Google search, right? And um, favoring its own YouTube or for hotels, right? Favoring Google's uh, hotel or flight tool over, for example, Expedia or booking.com. That all technically would fall under this language. You can't do that. Um, you can't give your own sites or products preferential treatment. So that could be using the data to give them a, an advantage, or that could just mean putting them higher in the search results. That's certainly a big advantage, right? I think very interesting that you have the representative from Amazon's district sponsoring this thing, which is clearly um, a direct shot at Amazon. The other one here, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act is similar, but I'd say um, more nuanced. You can see here Ben breaking down a list of, you know, restricts the platform owner from limiting a business user's interoperability. That overlaps with the access bill, um, bans retaliation by the platform owner, uh, Bans anti-steering provisions, Spotify being able to tell iOS users to, to subscribe online or link to the web, right? So it's saying you can't, you can't tell Spotify to not do that stuff. Restricts the platform's owner from treating the platform's own products or different, uh, own, own products differently in search or rankings, right? 
bans the use of data about the activities of third-party businesses to improve the platform's own product, taking data from third-party sellers, benefiting Amazon Basics. You know, this one's kind of like the mega bill. And then underneath that, they break out essentially, you know, some other areas here that are similar, but then also have their own bill entirely. So basically, <laughs> you know, I think the the chairman and the committee here is approaching this and saying, hey, we know that not all these things are going to make it all the way through. So we're going to have kind of a roll-up bill, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. And then we're going to break out certain components of that, which we think are really, really important, right? So maybe the whole thing doesn't make it through or the whole thing kind of gets watered down. And then they've got a few kind of follow-on bills, um, which are sometimes explicitly mentioned in the roll-up bill, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, and then are specifically broken out into their own separate bill. So I like the approach. I'll give you one more example of media kind of pooing this. Here's the information. Uh, Washington's flawed big tech breakup proposals. Lawmakers took a step towards breaking up big tech today. Coming on a, on a near summer slow news Friday, this was bound to generate a lot of headlines. But even if you agree big tech needs to be restrained, I mean, is that even an if? Uh, these proposals aren't the answer. Really, Martin. The prime example of a company to be affected is Amazon not being able to sell private label products. And then he goes into the um, Walmart. Well, what happens if this applies to Walmart thing, right? Another part of this would be uh, tech giants not being able to buy competitors. We already have antitrust regulators. Rather than trying a massive restructuring of the industry, why not wait until the various antitrust investigations and lawsuits underway work their way through the system? The combined weight of those efforts, along with the quotidian pressure of regular competition, may be enough to curb the power of big tech. If not, then we can discuss the modern version of trust-busting legislation. What? It, just, it just doesn't make any sense. What the hell does quotidian mean? <laughs> this guy and his big words, quotidian, of or occurring every day, daily. Let's reread Martin's gibberish here. The combined weight of those efforts, along with the daily pressure of regular competition, may be enough to curb the power of big tech. Thanks, Martin. You don't know what you're talking about, buddy. Go back to actually doing some investigative reporting. Thank you. Um, anyway, so really positive steps here. We are making progress in our fight against big tech, and we will rein it in. All right. Xbox doesn't make any money. So this was also really interesting. Um, so much better reporting. Trial testimony cracks open Microsoft's black box. So basically what this is saying is in the Epic Apple trial, Microsoft executives came up on stage and said, you know what? We've actually never made any money selling the actual Xbox console ever. And where they make their money, Microsoft offsets the losses with a 30% commission it charges on game sales. Um, and then they have subscriptions to Game Pass and, uh, and you know, other, uh, you know, in-game buying your little staff for your character, all these kinds of in-game purchases, which is really interesting. And the reason why it's so interesting is, 
you know, in, in the book and on our blog, one of the things we've covered when we published this thing years ago, uh, seven strategies for solving the chicken and egg problem. And one of those strategies is enter with significant pre-investment. And we use, guess what, Xbox as an example. A great example of the strategy is Microsoft's launch of the original Xbox about committing $500 million to promote the platform and, you know, do this to both get, yes, consumers interested, but, you know, they needed to get uh, the game developers to make games so that when they launch the Xbox, it has games that you can play, right? So, you know, they said, hey, we're going to put all this money into Xbox game developers. You should feel confident that you can build uh, a game and, and you will do well, right? Because we're going to get a lot of customers and demand coming through to this thing. It just so happens that the word pre-investment, that should actually be struck because what Microsoft's strategy is just continue to subsidize the cost of the console for decades and make it up on the transactions, on, on, the, on the core transaction, on the usage. But they've continued to subsidize the cost of, this, of the console for now, not just years, but decades, which is really interesting. And I think a great example, A, about tech monopoly strength to continue to invest in this, um, and B, about what ends you have to go to um, and what ends Microsoft is willing to go to, particularly just in gaming, um, to really get these network effects and keep these network effects. We've also saw Microsoft use another strategy here, this, uh, our single and double-sided marquee strategy, where they were taking, you know, they were giving big contracts. We saw Spotify do this with Joe Rogan on podcasting, but we saw Microsoft do this with their Mixer competitor against Twitch to steal Ninja and other big gamers to come over to Twitch. That's the marquee strategy to try and seed the demand and bring key producers over to the marketplace, the platform to get uh, consumers interested. So lots of different ways you can take the slice of the apple. Microsoft really, you know, very um, adept platform operator over there. Jeff to the moon. Um, no, he is not buying Safe Moon uh, to Dave Portnoy's much chagrin, but he is going into space and he will fly into space next month. The guy is flying into space on his own rockets, Blue Origins rockets. He plans to fly Blue Origins' first human space flight. And I mean, they've been testing this thing. So, yeah, is it really the first time they've sent a rocket into space? You know, they've probably sent it into low atmosphere, which is maybe not technically space. But believe me, this is not the first rodeo for Blue Origin to be sending up a rocket into space. Whatever, how do we want to qualify this thing? This is not um, completely, this is not, not even. This is not untested. This thing has been tested a lot. And it, one of the funniest things to me about, you know, Bezos, maybe it was in the past couple of years, basically saying kind of what's his investment strategy for Blue Origin. He's basically like, yeah, I just give it a billion dollars a year. And like, that's cool because space is cool. I want to go on this flight because it's a thing I've wanted to do all my life. Bezos said, it's an adventure. It's a big deal for me. Bezos said he invited his younger brother, Mark. Um, who he described as his best friend. And um, there's a winner of an auction here to, to, uh, you know, to go in the third seat. Now, here's the really interesting thing. It talks about re beating Richard Branson into space. When I actually heard this story 
it reminded me of Richard Branson. So in, in one of Richard Branson's books, I think maybe like Losing My Virginity, the guy talks about what he did. Now, it's funny because everyone's like, oh my God, Jeff Bezos going into space. He's going um, right after July 4th. Yeah. Um, and now that he has stepped down from, oh, on July 20th. And now that he's stepped down from Amazon, you know, the investors can't freak out. Um, but, but they're probably still freaking out a little bit anyway. But anyway, it reminded me of Richard Branson, where well, what Richard Branson did, he literally tried to go, I think, around, like maybe across the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, in a hot air balloon. <laughs> okay. Very different than spending billions of dollars investing in rockets that have been tested for years and then going into space. Might si sound similarly daunting but trust me uh richard branson's story on his hot air balloon adventure i mean it nearly killed the guy yeah here so i i found some of the details here there's a dramatic end to the journey when branson had no option but to leap from the air balloon into the sea this occurred after their balloon had briefly touched the ground in northern ireland dragging the pair through the water at a hundred miles an hour <laughs> The Virgin Atlantic Flyer was the first ever hot air, hot air, hot air balloon to, to do the Atlantic crossing, during which it achieved speeds of more than 130 miles an hour. Oh. Uh, they survived, fortunately. They were rescued by the Royal Navy. Talk about a harrowing adventure. Talk about truly uh, life or death type of situations. That is, he was 36 years old, by the way. 1987, he did this. Um, he almost died. He talks about it vividly in the book. I, I still remember it to this day, but, um, Hey, billionaire explorers. I don't know. I don't think, I mean, I don't know in, in those dollars back in 87, if Branson was actually a billionaire, he's certainly well off, but, um, he'd sold Virgin Atlantic, I think, you know, sometime before that. Um, but, uh, yeah, Hey, I guess you got that much money. Got to keep that adrenaline going. Um, but face. And all that stuff is very cool. I wish Jeff the best safety to him and the other passengers. So last topic is really interesting report that came out. The second measure, they track basically uh, like they've, they've got the ability to look at kind of credit card payments and point of sale payments. You can see here they compared Airbnb versus the rest of the hotel industry. And what is interesting from this is it proves the same thesis that we talk about all the time, platforms versus linear businesses, right? And it proves what happened to Platt during COVID. So here is Platt uh, from inception. You can see the dip, that big dip right here, kind of in the middle, is the COVID drop, right? And then look at how fast Platt comes back compared to the S. This is compared to the S and P 500, the, the orange here, right? You know, Platt and the S and P 500 were actually pacing somewhat the same, but look at how fast the platforms bounce back. You know, they kind of went down somewhat the same, and then look at how much faster the platforms bounce back and have sustained um, that faster pace of just growth and and value capture as compared to the rest of the S&P. Now you see something similar in the actual payment data for Airbnb versus the hotel industry. So don't look as much, I mean, 
these orange and blue lines are relative to each sector, really Airbnb and the hotel industry, the top four hotel companies, 2019 sales. So that's what it's benchmarking it. It's not so much an apples to apples comparison, but you can look at, again, they both went down. They actually both went down roughly the same amount from where they were at that point in time when COVID hit. And then look at how much faster Airbnb bounced back, right? And look at how much faster Airbnb was able to accelerate growth as compared to the hotel industry. So again, it just shows you that um, the the platform business model, that asset-like nature, uh, that tech-first digital um, uh, model that these platforms have, give them a much better kind of disaster-proof resiliency than your traditional competitors as evidenced by the hotel industry or as evidenced by, um, you know, the S&P 500 and what you would call more asset heavy, you know, what we call linear competitors, right? And so it makes sense when you think about it. And we've seen it play out now. Um, COVID couldn't you know, have, have provided a, a more stark contrast and um, example about those, that thesis and Proving it correct uh, on certainly an unfortunate set of events, but you know that platform model, um, not just the tech monopolies, but you know these uh, platform stocks more holistically, whether it's Airbnb or the basket in Plat, continue to outperform. So um, coming up, we're going to have an analyst at Wisdom Tree come. We just did a rebalance on Plat, and Nick co-author with me on the book. Uh, we're going to have them on the show and we're going to talk about, you know, the the new platforms that went into the index uh, for the recent rebalance on Plat. So stay tuned for that. Thank you very much for joining me today on Winner Take All. I will talk to you soon.